welcome you today to our program. Once again, the Berkeley Evangelistic Association, and we're currently in a series study called Standing Against Satan. Now, we're down to lesson number eight, and this one is uh, Sword of the Spirit, probably one of the most important ones. Sword of the Spirit, as everybody knows, is the Word of God. We look in Ephesians 6, verse 17b, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness, and let us put on the armor of light. And we find that in Romans chapter 13, verse 12. So thus far, we have only discussed the defensive posturing against our enemy as we wear and apply our armor that God provided for us. No war has or will be won against an enemy without the proper weapons of offense. We have a very powerful and attention-getting weapon that we are free to use against our enemy, Satan, and all his ministers of evil. When Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and Satan came to him with tempting, Jesus put Satan in his place with this very weapon. Thus, guess what it is. The spirit of the, the sword of the spirit the Word of God. Let's have open a prayer. Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and for all your blessings that you bestow upon us. Father, I pray this message today would fall in the hearts of those who need to know Jesus, those that might uh, have a spiritual moment that is unclear. Lord, that there be a clarification. There would be um, deliverance. That there would be a drawing of your spirit to the point of repentance and people listening to this would come to know Jesus and know how powerful and how direct your word is in your word. Lord, that we call it a sword because it, it divides between uh, the spirit and the soul, between the bone and the marrow. Lord, that we uh, can use your word to defend ourselves, to be on the offense against Satan and rebuke him in the name of Jesus. Now, Father, be with this message, be with me in this ministry as we bring forth the word that you would have us to, uh, to teach and to preach, and we give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, we have a book full of his, uh, this power to use called the Holy Bible. Jesus didn't have the Bible to use, but you know what? He didn't need the Bible. He is the author of the Bible because Jesus was the incarnation of God in the flesh. So even though we have this powerful weapon, many won't or don't understand how to use it. People today, in more ways than we realize, are actually offended by the Word of God and the Bible and consider it to be, in, to be uh, offensive. Now Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, says this, For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tested in the wilderness, as mentioned earlier in this study in verses 1 through 11. We see the most perfect example of how we are to use the sword of the Spirit. It is the most powerful and awesome and offensive, offensive weapon we have. In actuality, it is the only 
uh, effective weapon we have because it attacks Satan where it hurts. He hates the truth of the word. Now, verse number one says Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. You can only imagine if he hadn't had nothing to eat in 40 days, 40 nights, that he was definitely hungry. Now when the tempter, which is Satan, came to him, and he called him the tempter, so this clarifies the fact that Satan is the tempter of temptation to man. He said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written. So there we have the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city. Now notice the devil didn't try to tell him to turn stones into bread anymore. He just took him on up to the holy city, set him on a pinnacle of the temple, high point, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, here comes the word again, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Okay, again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory because Satan had had power over the world because he took it from Adam. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Here comes the word again, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now, what do we see different with Jesus' temptation than what we have with our temptation? Jesus did not entertain for one iota or one second the thought that Satan was putting in his mind. Jesus just rebuked it right off the bat with the word, told him uh, what, what the word said about God, and the devil finally had to leave. And that's what happens today. When we have temptation, we want to entertain the thought for a few seconds. And when we do that, Satan gets stronger and the word of God gets further away from us. Now, we're looking at Mark chapter 1, verse 12. We see an even stronger directive to Jesus. In verse 12, it says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Not led him, but drove him. Now, here we find that not only was Jesus led, like in Matthew, but in the wilderness, but tempting, but he was driven into it. We have to ask ourselves, when is the last time we were driven by the Holy Spirit to do God's will? When was the last time that you were driven by God's Holy Spirit to do God's will? God arranged for this temptation, and we have to ask ourselves why. Okay, number one is, Jesus was to prepare himself to become our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, it says, For in, in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. 
For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. He's been there tempted beyond what we will know, and he did not fail in his personal battle. Why is that? Because he had the word and he applied the word in faith and accomplished the task that God set before him. Jesus can help us with our temptations because he knows what it is to be tempted. Some may be saying, okay, but Jesus was not tempted like me. And we have things today that Satan tempts us with that he surely did not tempt Jesus with, with these things because they weren't available at the time. But it's the same thing. The temptation is the same no matter what year it was, where it was, or what it was, the temptation is the same. The answer to the temptation is the same, the Word of God. Sure, he was. The temptation, okay, he was tempted so in the temptation. It's handled the same way as what we just said. And the problem is Jesus had the willpower, okay? That's something we don't have. He had the willpower to stand against the enemy. But we only realize the truth. And our will is in our mind and not in the heart. We read and study and understand the Bible intellectually, but not spiritually. Our spirit is indeed willing, but our flesh is so weak. Why is this? Because we have not committed our total self to the Word. We have not ingested the Word into our hearts and let it dominate our lives. We are only talking the talk and not walking the walk. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. And the high priest is who? Is Jesus Christ. He, it's not that he can't sympathize. He can. He understands our weaknesses. But was in all points. Okay, that means in every way. He was tempted as we are. Yet he did it without sin. Jesus has compassion and understanding for us. Remembering we are made of dust. And because he knows exactly how it feels to be tempted. And yet without sin he did this. Jesus knows all about our struggles. Okay, second, he, uh, Jesus, uh, God tempted him to, to expose Satan's devices. Okay, the devil uh, prefers to lurk in the darkness and spring out in a surprise attack. The devil, devil doesn't want to know uh, don't want us to know his tactics and methods, but Jesus flushed him out from that day in the wilderness. He flushed him out. We are not ignorant of his devices, thanks to Jesus. Satan waited until Jesus was physically weak and worn down before he came to him that day. It didn't matter to Jesus because he was in tune with the Holy Spirit, and he was empowered to compete, complete God's will by the Spirit. Shouldn't we, as children of God, be any, should we be any less ready and willing to accomplish our Father's will? Yes, the Holy Spirit now resides in us, just like with Jesus, just like with the apostles and the disciples and all those saints that uh, had come before us. Yes, indeed, the Spirit is willing. But most of us just can't seem to pull it together enough to make our soul and flesh commit willfully to God. The power of the Word, the sword of the Spirit, is so powerful against Satan that most of us have no idea what the Word of God is capable of. When we get down and despaired, broken, over situations, we immediately go into a woe-is-me scenario or we start feeling sorry for ourselves and forget to lean on Jesus. 
We forget to lean on Jesus. We forget the power of the word because we're feeling sorry for ourselves. No one's ever had to suffer with this like I have. And we, woe is me. That's what we do. And God's word is a healing word. You know, God knows all this. And that's the reason Jesus had to come and accomplish what we were not able to. And still we are not able to stand correctly, being of one accord and focused on the truth of Jesus Christ. And God knows this. Okay, that's the reason we're wrapped in Jesus' righteousness and not our own. Because we're unable to stand. Our salvation and forgiveness is based strictly on the life and the work of Jesus and his cross, what he did on the cross. And we are saved by believing on Jesus and, God's, and by God's loving grace. God will forgive sin no other way except through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is mankind through Jesus that is the only way that God's going to forgive. Now, thirdly, God's going to teach us how the sword works. Just because Jesus was the Son of God doesn't mean his temptations weren't real. He had laid aside his divine powers. He faced Satan as a man and human using the sword of the Spirit, using the Word of God. And all his quotations that day were from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 13, verse 16, and chapter 8, verse 3. Okay, love the Lord your God, 8.3. So he humbled, he humbled you, allowed uh, you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know, that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then chapter 6, verse 16, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you did, tempted him in Massa. And then verse 13, chapter 6, verse 13, You shall fear the Lord your uh, God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. Good thing he didn't try to win using human reasoning like we do. Jesus used a sword, the spirit of the sword, the sword of the spirit, that we can use. We can use the same word that Jesus did and we can have victory over, over Satan. Now let's expose Satan's strategies. Number one, to satisfy a right desire in a wrong way. Matthew 4, verses 2 and 3, with a real body, he got very hungry in 40 days. Now we're talking about Jesus in the wilderness again. He had a natural appetite. His taste buds would water with the thought of food. Jesus could have satisfied a legitimate desire, but in an illegitimate way. So Satan tempted him to use his power to produce instant food. That is something we are quite used to today. Put food in the microwave for a minute or two, and presto, you have a hot meal. Or pull into the closest fast food place, and very shortly you can get a, a meal uh, rather quickly. And in the case of Jesus... He could turn desert stones into bread. After all, John had said that uh, God could turn stones into sons of Abraham. And if Jesus is God's son, then surely he could turn stones into bread, a lesser miracle. Now later, he would demonstrate that he could change water into wine and multiply a few loaves of uh, bread and fishes and feed thousands of people. Oh, he had the power. And why not use it? 
The desire for food was innocent but strong. The need was imperative. And he had the power to secure instant relief. So the bait is skillfully wound over the barbed hook. Now let's see Jesus' response to this in verse number 4. There's power in the word. It is a sword that fights against Satan. Its sharp edges cut at him. Its blunt handle crushes his head. Its pointed tip runs him through. And it matters not if you are right or left-handed, highly trained or new to it. Satan cannot, cannot compete against God's offensive weapon, his holy word. Satan hates the word of God. That's the reason he distorts it, twists it, lies through it, and tries to get us to follow his lies. And we have to realize that the Holy Bible, God's word, is the word. Not what Satan says or what he might try to throw at us. Now we have God-given desires, and, and some examples of these would be... Uh, sexual desires they are normal and natural we're attracted men are attracted to women women are attracted to men and so forth and god made them to be with the right species right gender and within the bounds of marriage today in this world he's doing an excellent job by using sexual desires to distort uh, the marriage that god set forth between adam and eve between a man and a woman and he satan is attempts to turn the natural desire that's what that means, into adultery and fornication, okay, and ambition, ambition. It would be nice if more exp uh, expressed this natural desire to work and improve oneself. Satan turns this ambition into covetousness, greed, and selfishness. Then we have sleep and rest. I'm an addict. I do it every day. Satan urges us to take it to the extreme of laziness and slothfulness and abuse it. Everything that God has is a natural, a natural God-given desire. Satan uh, contaminates it and turns it around and turns it into a sin. Now, eating. Yes, we need food, but we do not meet the need for food by stealing. That would be satisfying a right desire in the wrong way. Walmart actually posted armed guards in some places to prevent looting. We eat to live. No problem. Satan wants us to live to eat. Now that's a gluttony. And you can't spot a glutton from the outside. It's, you, have to, you have to know the heart of the person. And that's what God does. So Jesus could use his sword because it was his armory in his memory. Whatever our individual struggles there are verses which apply to, to us and these needs. Will you hide them in your heart so you can meditate upon them? And when you, when you need it, you can draw them from your sheath or from your memory and use it against Satan. Number two, the sin, a sin of presumption. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 7, Satan pulls a quote from uh, Psalms 91:11, for he will command the angels concerning you to guard you uh, all in your ways. Okay, the child of God has the protection of God in the will of God. When we get out of God's will, his grace will forgive us. 
but his government will allow us to suffer the consequences. An example, now this is if I jumped off the third floor, it is a mistake. If in midair I admitted my mistake and asked God to forgive me, will he? Yes, he will. He'll forgive me. But someone's going to have to clean up the mess that I'm going to make because I'm still going to hit the ground. Okay? You cannot tempt the Lord your God. Jesus was tempted with the sin of presumption. You cannot purposely put yourself into a situation where God has to bail you out and do a miracle in order to rescue you because it's not going to work. The laws that God has put in place from creation will remain in place. And one of the biggest laws is gravity. If you fall from a cliff, you're probably going to die. If you fall from the top of, the, of a skyscraper, you're going to die when you hit the street. Gravity is going to be a law that's placed there, and God is going, it's going to uh, be prominent because it's a law that God put in place, and it's still, it's still there. Okay, you'll see some TV preachers say, just mail me a check, and I'll pray a prayer of debt relief for God to miraculously get your head above the water. Will that help? I do believe God can work miracles and help us recover from our past mistakes. But if it works, should we go out and ring up a bunch of new debt? After all, you can just pray for another miracle, right? To him who knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is a sin. To be deceived into sin like Eve is one thing, but to fall headlong into sin willfully like Adam did, that's quite still another. Now, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is quoted many times about this willful, willful uh, sinning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. But I do wonder sometimes how often we sin willfully, knowing that we can just confess it later. This is a sin of presumption. Augustine says, God will grant forgiveness to every man that repents, but he may not grant repentance to every man that sins. His point being that when you become a willful sinner, you start down a one-way street that is difficult to return home on. Christians today want God's promise without God's precepts, and it doesn't work that way. Shifting gears, we are sometimes tempted to, uh, to demand a visible proof of God's presence and care. For example, someone may say, God, if you don't, if you don't uh, heal me, I won't believe in you. Or you could even state, uh, give me a job or make that girl like me. That is not faith. But actually, you're putting God to the test. If you have to have a miracle in order to believe that God, in God, has already said what he's already said in his word, then you lack true faith. The faith, true faith, does not put God to the test. Remember, Jesus quote from Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Mazah. That incident in, is found in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1 through 7 in Mazah. Uh, then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and, and encamped in uh, Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the 
people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Jesus, Moses said to them, Why do you content with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it? Have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said Moses to Moses, Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel, and also take in your hand your rod which, uh, with you, which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may be may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, so he called the name of the place Mazah and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? There they complained against Moses and God because there was no water. They demanded water and said, Is the Lord among us or is he not? If he is, then prove it by giving us water. Instead of waiting on God's provision, they put him to the test. Putting God to the test is uh, when you insist that God do something to prove himself to you. Now, true faith does not demand signs of heaven or miracles, but simply believes the word of God. Point three, to take a spiritual shortcut. Okay, a spiritual shortcut. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 to 11. Satan promises Jesus the world. Again, the devil took him up on the ceiling high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him, All these things I'll give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. The problem with Satan's offer is that Jesus has already been promised the kingdom of this world. Let's look at Psalms chapter 2. Now, I've talked about this many times. It says, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens still laughs. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Satan says you don't have to wait. I am currently the God of this world, but will hand you the title deed of this earth if you just worship me. Jesus was a man. This means he had trouble with patience just like we do. But Jesus wouldn't let, uh, take a spiritual shortcut. He had come this time, to this time for the cross, not the crown. I'm so glad Jesus had the discipline to wait and do it the right way that God wanted him to. Now seekers today want the crown without the cross. Satan's glory always leads to suffering. God's suffering always leads to glory. I can't promise you uh, your best life now. 
I won't lie to you and say that God has a wonderful plan for your life. If you give your life to Christ, it may mean a lifetime of suffering. But if you pick up your cross daily and follow him, I can promise you the end result will be an eternity of glory. If you don't repent and live for yourself in this life, I can promise you an eternity of suffering. Don't try to take a spiritual shortcut. Satan's way looks to be the easiest, but ends up being the hardest. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15. Good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful is hard. The way of transgressors is hard. God's way may look difficult at first, but in the end it proves to have been the easiest way to blessing. Oh, how Satan effectively uses that kind of temptation today. Satan is always offering instant gratification. The Bible admits uh, there is temporary pleasure in sin. So many are like Esau, who traded the value of his birthright for a temporary pleasure of a bowl of pottage or beans. You've seemed vulnerable to this temptation. For example, Satan will say, why wait until marriage to uh, experience the pleasure of sexual intimacy? I will give it to you now. And many young people fall for such temptations of Satan. But we need to follow the example of Christ. He maintained loyalty to God and endured the cross and the suffering, for he knew that beyond the cross was a crown of glory. Hebrews 12, uh, 2, looking, in, uh, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. We can't just play defense with our armor. We need an offensive weapon. The sword of the Spirit, God's word of truth, offends Satan, cutting him down to size. We must read it, meditate upon it, study it, and hide it in our hearts. The book of Psalms gives us an example of just what was said. Psalms 119.11 your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you are a Christian, Satan has no authority over you. You can't say, the devil made me do it. The only way knowingly to commit sin is to purposely do it. We no longer, we no longer can say we are ignorant to sin. No, we have the Holy Spirit in us, guiding us, convicting and monitoring our actions. Yet we allow Satan to influence our minds and heart to sin, even though we have a powerful weapon to use against him, like the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. When we are faced uh, with these moments of temptations, temptation, we should uh, remember that the Holy Spirit will not take charge of our mind and heart unless, unless we allow it or ask it in prayer. The Spirit will deliver us and help us, but we must ask and allow it to happen. We cannot rebuke Satan's evil if we do not have the word in our heart and bring it up from the heart to our mouth to rebuke him with our loud voices. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 tells us like this, No temptation has overcome you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 
but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. James 4, verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So now let us remember always that we resist with the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God in Hebrews 4.12 tells us about the two-edged sword that cuts and separates. For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It is interesting to note here that we could also uh, use this Bible illustration to separate life from death. The Bible tells us that the blood of the body is the life of the body. Without blood, there could be no life. So if there is no life, then there is only death. When the sword of the Spirit separates the joint from the marrow, is in fact separating life from death because the marrow of the bone is where blood is produced. God's Word is like a sword, two-edged, extremely sharp, and it divides life from death, soul and spirit. And it is used and directed with the Holy Spirit that lives within each believer. And this sword of spirit is under the believer's command to use against our spiritual enemy, Satan. Amen. Thank you, Father, God, for this powerful offensive weapon you have allowed us to have and use against Satan. May we never forget the price it cost you to allow us eternal life with you and Jesus, your precious Son. Ladies and gentlemen, today we have the Word of God to use in our battle with Satan and we stand against Satan. And we just need to come and follow the word, accepting Christ, believing on him, and God, through his Holy Spirit, will do the rest. That's all we have to do is just believe, and, and we're saved by God's grace. He's giving us this gift, giving us this gift. He give us his word, that we have his word in the Holy Bible, that we can read it and use in those verses against the temptations that the, that the devil uses against us every day, and we can defeat him and rebuke him in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for being with us today. I appreciate everything that everybody does to, uh, through your prayers and your support uh, for this ministry. I pray that all these lessons have been a blessing to you, that it opens doorways, uh, new thoughts for you to rebuke Satan, and it strengthens your spiritual uh, life, and brings you closer to God. I, that's my prayer. And I just pray that you will uh, continue to prosper, and that God will bless you and continue to uh, expand your borders and your life with you and your family. Now let's have a closing prayer, and we'll be dismissed until next time. Our Father and our God, we thank you today for the mercy of your word, your love, your grace. Thank you for Jesus that came and went to that cross so long ago. And Father, that uh, he gave himself 
to save us. Now, while we look and we see the devil trying to destroy us and bring us down to the pit with him, and then I see Jesus who gave himself for me so that I might live. And I'll assure you that I will be on Jesus' side because he loves me that much. Father, thank you for this ministry and for the opportunity to speak your word and to teach it. Father, I consider it an honor to be able to um, to bring these messages to the people of the world, Lord, that those that are listening. Lord, I pray that everybody's in the sound of my voice, that, the, that this message, the words, and your spirit, Father, will fall on them and convict them to come closer to either accept Jesus or to come closer to him in their relationship. Lord, that we can establish a relationship with Jesus that's that's one-on-one and personal because I know that's the way you wanted it to be. Father, we love you. We thank you for all that you do. Forgive us now of our sins where we failed you. And until next time, we pray blessings upon each and every one that's listening today. We pray this in Jesus' name.